11 with me this morning. The Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. We've been two weeks in this chapter looking at this great miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. And I had thought that we would skip this last section, move straight into chapter 12. But there is a statement in this passage that I, I want you to see. So the Gospel of John chapter 11, we'll pick up the story at verse 45. John chapter 11 and verse 45. The many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priest and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. Nor consider, haven't you thought about this, that it is expedient for us, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. From the time that John picked up his pen to write the fourth gospel, he had one thing in mind. We have pointed out over and over again, these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That is his theme. And John's gospel is written late in the first century, and the other three gospels have been circulating in the church for many years by this time. And John didn't want to just retell the same stories that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had told. And that's why so much of the material in his gospel is unique to his gospel. He selects material from a vast body of the Lord's teachings and miracles and workings. And he presents the best evidence that he believes to help you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the single issue to him. Do you believe. That's why some 98 times in this gospel alone he uses some form of believe, believeth, believing. So John selects seven miracles out of hundreds that we call sign miracles. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Seven signposts that are pointing to Jesus. Seven signs in Flashing bright neon lights. It says you must believe because of this. So in John 2, he turns water into wine. In John 4, he heals the nobleman's son in Capernaum. In John 5, he heals that impotent man at the pool of Bethesda. In John 6, he feeds the 5,000 and he walks on the water. In John 9, he heals the man born blind And now in John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And we have come to this miracle the last couple of weeks. And in my estimation, it is the greatest 
of the miracles. Now I say that knowing that any true miracle of supernatural power is great and, and, and it is a miracle. But when you raise somebody from the grave that's been there for four days, that's kind of hard to beat, to be honest with you, all right? But, but in reading the aftermath of the story, there are several things that have surprised me. This last section that I have read part of it too, there are some things that I would not have expected after that miracle. For one thing, it surprises me that this story is not told in the other three Gospels. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all written somewhere between 50 to 65 A.D. At least they're all written before 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus, the Roman general, and the nation is destroyed. John is written much later after that. So there are several years, several years that go by where these three Gospels have been written, John has not, and so there are several years of the Gospels that this story is not being told in the early church. And if there is any story I think that they would want to keep alive, it seems like that it would be this story. Of course, I understand that they are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he dictated, he directed to what they would write, but for the most part, much of the early century had no written record of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That surprises me. There's a second thing that surprises me, and that is there is no follow-up on Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. As soon as Jesus calls Lazarus forth out of the grave, the story immediately pivots to the response of those who Witness the miracle, and there is nothing else said about that family. Lazarus is going to be mentioned in chapter 12, just as a side note, but I would have loved to have heard a few words from Lazarus. I, I would have liked to have heard a testimony, maybe write a track. Um, did he go on a speaking circuit and tell what he saw on the other side? There's just, there's just absolutely nothing. And it surprises me that we don't get to hear from Lazarus about what his experiences was during those four days. I think the biggest surprise to me is the response of the crowd to the miracle. Now there's a lot of details that are left out because it is not written to satisfy our curiosity. It is getting written to get men to believe. But all along in John's gospel, here's what we've seen. We have seen belief and unbelief back to back. We have seen faith and unbelief juxtaposed against each other. And how many times have we read in a story that some believed and others did not believe? But when a man who has been in the grave for four days comes out, not spelling like he's been in the grave, surely you believe now. You may have come up with an explanation or an excuse for all of those other six miracles, but how are you going to deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God now? Right. If you really believed that this happened, then you have to believe in the one who made it happen. But our text says that many believed and many did not believe. That surprises me. In fact, if you were to close your Bible at John 11 and verse 42, 
Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. If you'd close your Bible right there and had never read any farther, you would have to conclude that this miracle is the miracle that turns the entire nation toward Christ. If this was the last word of the gospel and we had no historical record, no biblical record, we would all say it's very reasonable to conclude that after this miracle, the nation, the nation is converted after this miracle. But instead, it is this miracle that actually, actually becomes the nail in the coffin, so to say, for most of that nation and certainly for the religious leaders and the religious crowd decides that, that this is it, this is the final straw, that we must kill Jesus and we must kill him soon because of this miracle. What I find in this section are the responses to the miracle and the responses to me are as amazing as the miracle itself. And I would say the same of today. The gospel is a wonderful story and it is true. Every word of the gospel is true. It is amazing. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would die on a cross for my sins and for your sins. But I want to tell you, the world's response to that story amazes me just as much as the story itself. Step through the text with me. Verse 45. I want you to notice what I call undeniable faith. Look at it with me. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on the household of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus must have been a familiar one in the surrounding area. Because when Lazarus died, Jews have come from different regions, certainly from Jerusalem, for this customary period of mourning. You find this back in verse number 19. Many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then in verse 31, the Jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her. So we don't know how many, but there was a good group of family and friends and acquaintances that had followed the family and they had followed the family out to the grave and they are in this seven-day mourning period. And so get the picture in your mind that when Jesus stood at the mouth of that cave, that house that had the body of Jesus and called for Lazarus to come out, he wasn't standing there alone. There was, there was a crowd, there was a multitude was there. And can you imagine, can you imagine standing there and watching a dead man that you watched go into that grave four days earlier, can you imagine watching him come out of that grave as if he had never been there before? And you just got to visualize that. And, and, and I'm going to assume that, 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 that everybody there that day knew who Christ was and what his claims were there was nobody in Israel by this time that does not know of his fame and they have heard of or witnessed many miracles that he has done and some thought that he was the Messiah and, and, and they was talked about in every hamlet and in every village and in every town. But even now at this late hour, there's a lot of folks that probably had, had reserved an opinion on who Jesus was and they went on with life as if life would go on forever. But now they are forced to make a decision. Standing at the cemetery, watching Lazarus be united with Martha and Mary, everybody, everybody has to come to decision time right now. You're going to have to make up your mind. They've been able to remain neutral and noncommittal up to this point. 
maybe of something we're hearing from second hand or, or third hand. But I am looking, I am looking at the giver of life standing there and he is calling a dead man out of the grave. It is decision time is what it is. And that's why verse 45 says that many believed on him. It's interesting to me that just earlier in the day, in the text, Jesus had first talked to Martha. And when he talked to Martha, here's what Martha said in verse 27. She said, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. Martha believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that it was Messiah. And I don't think Martha had kept that to herself. How could you believe that and not tell somebody? So Martha had probably, I'm reading between the lines, she's probably tried to tell her family and her friends and, and people are skeptical and they're not as convinced as she was. But now it says that many of them believe, just like Martha, now they believe. Now, now here's what you have to know. In John's gospel, all faith is not saving faith. Saving faith is not just a mental assent to the gospel. But saving faith is trusting that gospel for your salvation. There's a whole, whole big difference. Hold your finger right here. Go back to chapter 2, John chapter 2. We'll stay in John's gospel. Let me show this to you. John chapter 2, look at verse number 23. First time he goes to Jerusalem at the temple. John 2, 23, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day. Watch this. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. So it says that many believed on his name, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knows what's in the heart of men. And he knows that it is shallow, superficial. It is not faith that is sufficient for salvation. Look, look in chapter 6, John chapter 6, if you would. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. John chapter 6, look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. These disciples are men who had had faith, but their faith was like sown seed that was sown on rocky ground and it did not take root. And faith that does not produce fruit is dead faith. Look at chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 and verse number 30. John 8 and verse 30. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Jesus said you believe on me, but the true sign of a true disciple is if you become obedient followers of me. It's not enough just to say I Believe, but does that faith produce any obedience? So I'm just saying that every time you hear the word belief in the gospel, it is not always saving faith. There is a faith that is insufficient for salvation. There is a faith that never moves beyond the initial stage of mental ascent and gets to trust and gets to repentance of sin. So come back to my text. When I read that many believed, I have to ask how far did their faith go. And I can only guess here because the scripture doesn't tell us, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt 
And I'm going to say that it goes all the way. I'm not trying to analyze their faith. I know that we're still on the other side of the cross, but they believe in Him. And here's the only point that I am making this morning is that everybody stood there with a choice and many people chose to believe. Can I say good choice? Wise, wise choice. Life-saving choice. Now, it took a miracle for them to finally believe. And I hope that it does not take a miracle for you to believe because if it does, you probably never will believe. It didn't take a miracle for me. It took the Holy Spirit showing me Christ is what it took for me. And I'm thankful for the day that I believe. Glad to be many of those who believe. I'm glad this morning that there are some things that all the demons in hell will never talk me out of. And one of them is my belief in Jesus Christ. There is an undeniable faith. But in verse 46, I want you to see there is unreasonable disbelief. Look at verse 46. Some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Visualize it. Two men, Bob and Larry, standing at the grave. And both men hear Jesus call for Lazarus to come forth. Both men have absolutely no doubt in their mind that Lazarus is dead and has been buried for four days. There is no trickery here. Both men are standing there when somebody rolls the stone away from the mouth of the cave and Lazarus comes hobbling out in his grave clothes. And both men are watching as somebody else comes up there and unwinds the grave clothes, sets him free, and he embraces Mary and Martha. Both, get it, both men see the exact same thing. And one man says in his heart, I don't need to see anything else. That is all the proof I need to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the other man standing there next to him says, hard to deny, but I'm not ready to commit myself yet. And instead of turning to Jesus, he slips away back into Jerusalem and he gives a report to the Pharisees. And by this time it is public knowledge that the Pharisees are enemy number one. They've already made several attempts on the life of Christ. So why would you go tell the Pharisees what you have seen? Why are you doing that? Well, one writer said that they went to the Pharisees to stir up controversy against Jesus. I, I honestly don't believe that it went that deep. Now, now, now watch this. They went to the Pharisees because those were their religious leaders. The scribes, the rabbis, the teachers in the synagogue, the doctors of the law, these are their, these are their religious leaders. If you were a religious leader in that day, you were either a Pharisee or a Sadducee. So the Pharisee, watch this, represents the Jewish religion. And Judaism is dead by now. It has become nothing but a dead ceremony and ritualism. It had absolutely no life in it. It was a religion of relics is what it was. There was no power. There was no ability in Judaism to save anybody. Watch this. Some people looked at the greatest miracle they had ever seen performed, turned away from the miracle worker, and went right back to their dead religion. It is amazing. 
that you can turn from someone who can give you life and turn back to something that is so dead. People all over the world that are putting their hope in a dead religion that gives no peace and no hope and no forgiveness of sins. They could have been set free, but they insist on going right back to the things that have kept them in bondage all of their life. Jesus went into that temple, and here, here's what he said about the religion. He said, this used to be a house of prayer. You have turned it into a den of thieves. Yeah. There is no life here. There is no God here. There is no worship here. And he told them in those certain terms that your leaders are corrupt, and your rituals are lifeless, and your ceremonies are useless because they don't have God in them. This is all of these people knew. They have grown up in this religion all of their life. All that they know is this religion. It's all that they've been taught, and they go back to their religion and turn away from Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. And all over Milton, Florida, are people who have been presented with the giver of life, but they cannot see the deadness of their religion. I, I don't mean disrespect to other religions, all right? I'm not, I don't mean disrespect. But wouldn't you love to walk into a Catholic mass and say, you people are wasting your time. God is not here. Wouldn't you love to walk into a kingdom hall or a mosque or a synagogue and say, come to Jesus? Come to, somebody help me a little bit, all right? There is no life here. He's not dead. He's alive. Your religion is dead. Come to Jesus. There's life in Jesus. Wouldn't you love to do that? Amen. Years ago, years and years ago, the United Methodist Church took all of the hymns on the blood out of their hymnal. You can't have salvation without the blood. Can't have it at all. Ain't going to happen. Wouldn't you love to be able to say, hey, there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. There is unreasonable disbelief. But in verse 47 and verse 8, there's unwarranted fear. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees at council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. The religious tribunal was, tribunal was the Sanhedrin. Seventy-one men, consisting of the chief men, the high priest always sat at the presiding elder of the council. There are lower courts throughout Judaism, but this body serves as the supreme court. And the Romans allowed the Jews a measure of self-autonomy and self-judgment, and the Sanhedrin headed that up. They are notoriously corrupt. They have total control over the people because the Sanhedrin caused the Sabbath laws, and they, they policed the people. They could expel you from the synagogue. So it was reported to them that Jesus has raised this man from the dead. It becomes evident to them that he really has done this. And this becomes cause of great concern to this council. So they call a meeting, either a quorum or the full Sanhedrin. We don't know. And they don't discuss whether the thing is true or not because there's no question it is. And no one stands up and says, you know, maybe we are on the wrong side of this. 
Maybe we should call Jesus in and talk to him. Maybe, maybe we should consider if he isn't the Christ. And no one said, no one said, if the story is true, then we are all condemned in our sins. We're trying to kill him, and we must confess to the nation that Jesus is the Messiah. Nobody said that. They called a council not to investigate the miracle, but to condemn the miracle worker. Here's their concern. This miracle could be the tipping point for a lot of people. More and more people are going to start believing in Jesus. That's what they said. They said all men will believe on him. Of course, if they believe on him, they won't believe on us. I mean, if they start believing him, this is going to hurt our crowds. This is going to hurt our offerings. This, this, this is going to hurt us. And if they don't believe us, this, this is going to threaten our power. This is going to be negative. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. It doesn't matter how many miracles he's done. It doesn't matter if he is from God. The only thing that matters is that we don't lose our power and influence over the people religiously. That's what their concern is. I've been teaching church history and in Bible Institute. We just come through the dark ages. When Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholicism had such a death grip over Europe, this entire continent that lie in darkness. And the Roman Catholic Church murdered, they butchered thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people trying to put down the gospel. They didn't care who they sent to hell. They didn't care how many Bibles that they burned. They didn't care how much blood they had to shed in order to keep their power. And here are the guardians of Judaism saying that something has to be done or we are going to lose our religious influence. We do not care if he is doing miracles. We don't care if he claims to be Messiah. We don't even care that he raised a dead man from the grave. We only care to keep people from believing that we might have power. That's amazing to me. In fact, look at that last statement. They say in verse number, verse number 48, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. As long as the Jews were quiet, didn't have any riots, rebellions, or revolts, the Romans allowed themselves autonomy. But the Pharisees reasoned, erroneously, but they reasoned that if too many people believe in him, he says he's the next king of Israel, there could be an insurrection come up. And then the Romans are going to come, put down the insurrection, and we're going to get swept up into it. We're going to pay a price too. And it's really convoluted reasoning that has to get them to that point. But they're basically saying that Jesus is a threat to our way of life. Yeah. That's what they're saying. Yeah. We, we have it pretty good right now. But if Jesus keeps going and people start turning to him in mass, we could lose it all. Never mind that they're in bondage to Rome right now. Right. Never mind they don't have true freedom. Right. Never mind they have to pay tribute to a foreign power anyway. We don't want to lose the place the Romans allow us to have. We have a, watch this, we have a good life even though it is not a free life and we don't want to give it up. And do you know how many people will not turn to Jesus Christ because they don't want to lose the life that they have? I have a good life even though it is not a free life. Even though I am in bondage to sin and addictions and all the rest of it. But I don't want to give that up for Jesus. And, and if, you think about, if you think about the life that they had under Rome, 
Then think about the peace and prosperity that they would have when Jesus Christ becomes their king, which will not be realized until the millennial reign of Christ. If, if they had accepted Christ as their king, he would have somehow brought in the kingdom, all right? You theologians discover the, all the dispensations of it. He would have brought in the kingdom of peace. And I'm going to tell you something. The kingdom he would have brought in didn't because they rejected him, but is going to bring in. Did you follow that? The kingdom he didn't bring in, but is going to bring in, I promise you, is better than the kingdom that they are under, under Rome. And I promise you that Jesus can give you a much better life than any life you give up for Jesus. But here's what they did. They went into self-preservation mode. Jesus said, he that will save his life will lose it. You try to save your life through self-preservation and you will end up losing your life. They said it will cost us too much to believe in Jesus. We will lose too much of the life that we have. And when a sinner is presented with the gospel, he understands that if I get saved, everything changes. And no man ever gets saved. As long as he wants to hold on to that old life and that old sin, you have to trade that for Jesus Christ. You do not get saved from sin by holding on to your sin. Many, many men have considered Christ and their sin and said, I don't want to lose my place in life, my lifestyle. And they turned away from Christ. The tragedy is that in trying to save their life, they did lose it. And just a week from now, Jesus is going to the cross and dying for their sin. 37 years later, the temple will be destroyed, Jerusalem demolished, the nation ended the Jews scattered. They tried to preserve their life, but they lost it anyway. And if you try to preserve your life and your sin and your rebellion against God, you will end up losing it in the end. Unwarranted fear. But I want you to notice, lastly, there is an unlikely messenger. Look at verse number 49. One of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. The high priest serves as the presiding elder of the Sanhedrin. He is the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He is the most powerful man in the Jewish world. It is a lifetime appointment in the Old Testament. But a lot of things have changed politically from the Old Testament to the New Testament. When the Romans took over, they appointed the high priest. And they appointed a man who would just keep peace with the Jews. So it becomes a political appointment more so than a religious leader. In the first 70 years of the first century, from, from, AD, or from, from B.C. 30, from, from when B.C. became B.C. and then to A.D. 70, about those first 70 years, there were 28 high priests in Israel. So it was a power play. It was an office that could be bought for a price. And at that time, Caiaphas was the high priest. He's there because of his family connections, because his father-in-law, Anna, had been the high priest. He knew that he is there as long as he pleases Rome. Life is good as long as I please Rome. So Caiaphas takes charge of the council, and here's what he says to him. He says, you don't know anything. And it sounds like he's gotten a little bit heated with him. I don't know. But all this hand-wringing and all this worrying, he said, here, here, here's your problem. Look at verse 50. You don't consider, nor consider, 
that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Here's what he said. Would it not be better that one man die instead of the whole nation perish? Would that not be expedient for the people? I mean, we're doing all of this hand-wringing about Jesus. It is obvious that what has to happen is he is going to have to die. Because if he doesn't die, and the Romans come, and we all end up dying. So under the guise of Jewish nationalism and patriotism, we must kill the biggest threat to preserve our nation. We have to kill Jesus in order to save the nation. Or we are going to have an insurrection. Wish I, had, I wish I had about three Bible readers in here right now. That's what I wish. Caiaphas didn't know it, but John made sure to tell you that that wasn't actually him talking. Because it says, this spake he not of himself. The man has just given the gospel, not even knowing what the gospel is. He is not a prophet, he's not a believer, and God ordered every word. He didn't come up with these words Somebody has put these words in his mouth. There is no man in the nation farther away from God. There is no man that hates Jesus Christ more than this man. There is no man that's more devoid of truth than Caiaphas is. If there is one man that is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ, it would be this man. And God put the gospel in his mouth and made him utter it without him even knowing what he was saying. Here's what he said. Here's what he said. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to the house. Here's what he said. He said, our only hope is a substitute. And what he said. Our only hope. The only way we are going to survive this if somebody else dies. <laughs> if he doesn't die, the entire nation is going to die. Either he perishes or we are going to perish. He does not know it yet. He doesn't know it. But he says it is the only solution. Either you have to perish or you have to accept that we're going to perish. It is either him or us. That's what he said. <laughs> and I would like to say amen, Caiaphas. That's exactly true. He has no idea what he's saying. But the best thing that can happen as a nation is if Jesus dies. It is expedient. It's necessary. It absolutely has to be done. It's the best thing for us. And can you not say that? It had to be done. It was expedient. It was necessary. It was the best thing that ever happened for Jesus to die for our sins. <laughs> the first couple sinned in the Garden of Eden, and when they did, they brought death into the world. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. It introduced a principle into our world that in order for something to live, something has to die. Our world operates on that principle. It is built into the plant kingdom. Every winter plants die so new ones can come to life in the spring. It's built into the animal kingdom. Some animals are predators. Some animals are prey. Some animals have to live or have to die in order for other animals to live. Some animals eat plants. Some animals eat other animals. Either way, death for life is built into it. It's built into the human kingdom. It doesn't matter to me whether you're a vegetarian or you just eat meat. It doesn't matter either way. But something has to die in order for you to live. Right? 
and it is built into our world to teach you a spiritual lesson. In order for you and I to have eternal life, somebody has to die. You either die in your sins or someone who dies for your sins. Either an innocent man dies for you or you pay the guilt of your sin. You may not like it, you may not accept it, but you don't get to change it. Somebody does, so somebody else can die. God told Abraham to take his son to Mount Moriah, sacrifice him on a burnt offering, as a burnt sacrifice on an altar of stone. And then God showed him a ram, caught in the thicket, and he's there as a substitute. Either Isaac dies or the ram dies. One or the other. And God has provided the substitute so Isaac doesn't have to die. I'm glad Jesus stepped in my place and said, I'll be your substitute on the cross. I will die for your sin so that you don't have to die in your sin. Because the only solution to sin is a substitute. That's what Caiaphas said. He doesn't realize what he's saying. And it's amazing that not one person in that council heard those, heard those words and saw that there was a deeper truth than what he intended. No one heard Caiaphas that day and said, you know, that sounds a lot like Isaiah 53. Nobody listened to that and said, you know, we ought to check. That sounds like Psalm 22. Nobody came along until John came along. So I just want you to know Caiaphas was preaching the gospel that day. And I love this statement. And it comes to the town. I love this statement where he says in verse number 52, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together and one of the children of God that were scattered. He didn't die just for the Jewish nation. He died for all the nations. He would gather from some, from every tribe, those whom he longs to be the children of God. You know what I believe? You know what I believe this morning? I believe that there are people that are steeped in animism and voodoo and ancestry worship in Suriname. You and I will never know their name. But I believe God knows them. And I believe that God would like to reach down to the Suriname, to Costa Rica, and all the nations. And I think he would like to call some out to be his children. In a dark place. Very little gospel witness. It is difficult to reach. It is hardship after hardship after hardship. But there are Japanese and Mexicans and Americans and Canadians that God wants to bring into his family. And the only solution to get them out of the family of Satan and into the family of God is that somebody had to die. The greatest truth in the world spoken by a God-hating, Christ-denying man. And if God would put those words in his mouth, I think God would put those words in our mouth. Give us the courage to speak. If that man can speak truth not knowing what he's talking about, you and I should speak truth knowing what we're doing. We ought to tell the world there's only one hope you got. There's only one so If you want to live, then somebody has to die. Heads about eyes closed all over the building.